Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I walk a straight line, shackle and chain. Oh, gruesome Gertie is calling my name. There is no mercy in this penitentiary. Just ask the Hill String Gang, Wrangle the Three. Welcome back to Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making, the complete story of America's bloodiest present. And I'm Jim Chapman. Woody is sick as of this recording. He's been sick for the last couple of days. But as we always do, we're going to make sure you get your Bloody Angola fix. Now, y'all know when we bring y'all these stories, we mix it up. We bring you the history of not only the prison itself, but also of some of the inhabitants of bloody Angola. And this is no exception. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of Wayne Feld, who was executed via Gruesome Gertie in bloody Angola. And we'll jump right into it. Wayne Feld was born in 1949, y'all, and he was raised in a middle-class family. He had uh, a lot of people that were in the military throughout his family. As a matter of fact, it, military service was a huge aspect of his upbringing. Now, this was shortly after World War II, and he was surrounded by war heroes. As a matter of fact, his dad and his uncle were very highly decorated, 
And Wayne loved to hear them talk about stories regarding World War II, the greatest generation, right? But there was a dark side to that that uh, really came to light with Wayne's father. Wayne's father was a heavy drinker, and he would be considered very abusive physically. But Wayne looked up to him regardless, and he would go into a violent rage quickly. I mean, this man would change on a dime. So Wayne was very careful growing up uh, in those younger years, those formidable years to attempt at least to avoid that. Now, his mom would tell Wayne that prior to the war, his dad was not the violent man Wayne was witnessing. And she would blame his violent, you know, snaps, if you will, on the war. She would say that he was drinking heavily because, uh, you know, of all the things he experienced in war and he would kind of snap like that because his head was messed up from the war. And maybe, maybe some of that was true. Uh, but it seemed that she would constantly make excuses for, uh, Wayne's father and his abuse. But eventually, his mother got sick of it. When Wayne was 12 years old, uh, the mother filed for divorce, and his father did not deal with that very well. As a matter of fact, he committed suicide. Now, despite all of that, his mother telling him you know, that the war caused a lot of these problems with his father, Wayne had in his mind from the age of 12, if not earlier, that he wanted to be a soldier. He wanted to be a war hero. He set his sights on that. And immediately upon graduating high school, when he turned 18, this was in 1967, he enlisted in the Army. Now, originally, he had plans. He wanted to be a vet and attend vet school but he wanted so bad to be in the army and be a war hero that he decided he would do that first. And when he came back, he would kind of fulfill, you know, that dream of being a vet doctor. Now, this is 1967, y'all. I mean, this is the smack dab in the middle of the Vietnam War. And the majority of your 18-year-old males were doing pretty much everything they could to avoid the draft. The draft was heavy. In that time. Uh, and so it was not common uh, for someone just to enlist and say, I want to go. It happened, but it wasn't it wasn't super common. But Wayne, he wanted to go to war and he wanted to go specifically to the Vietnam War. He got that wish and he arrived in Vietnam in March of 1968, which was the exact day that he turned 19 years old. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Vietnam before we go any further. Totally different war than World War II. Those stories Wayne was hearing from his father and his uncle when he was young. World War II was a, for lack of a better word, a very highly respectable war. We were attacked, meaning the United States, and we were fighting for a lot of different things. And, and it was a just war, if you will. Vietnam was looked at as the United States involving themselves in something that was kind of none of their business. We've all heard the stories of soldiers coming back and people spitting on them. My father was a Vietnam veteran. Uh, personally, 
And there was a lot of disrespect almost, even though most of these men and women that uh, were in Vietnam, many of them had no choice. But there was a ton of disrespect when they would come back. I mean, they would spit on them. They would throw things at them. I'm sure we've all seen that history. So as soon as Wayne got there, he realized this is not like the stories I've been told. And as a matter of fact, it took about a week before he realized he was shit deep in the thick of it. And a week after he got there, he actually got flown into a landing zone. And his whole job that day essentially was unloading casualties from returning helicopters. So these men... They would either come in dead or very highly wounded, in most cases highly wounded, and he would unload these guys. So he got a sense of that death and destruction and all the horrible things of Vietnam just a week in. And the next day, he actually was involved in an over two-hour firefight. And later in life, Wayne would actually recall some of the post-events of that firefight, and he described attempting to pick up the body of a dead soldier. And he said, I picked him up, and his legs came off. Said he vomited and managed to stuff the torso and upper body into the bag and then the legs and feet into the bottom part of that body bag. So those were the sorts of things he saw early on. And during that first year in Vietnam, he would spend the majority of the time watching his friends die in some pretty horrible ways. Now, later on in life, he would tell the journalist of a story of watching one of his fellow soldiers, and he got hit in the abdomen with a uh, mortar fire. And when mortars are fired, they break up and, and they become pieces of shrapnel, pieces of metal just flying. One of the pieces of metal hit this soldier in the abdomen and the guy kind of blew back, you know, six feet or so. And Wayne goes to help him. And he realizes as he's running to go help this guy that the guy's intestines have blown out and were sticking to Wayne's hands. And Wayne described that as I, I kind of held him while he died right there in my arms. So eventually he grew as he was in Vietnam from someone that could not wait to get there to someone that absolutely hated war. It didn't take long to change his opinion on that. And he actually wrote a letter to a friend while he was in Vietnam and he was trying to describe it. And he described it as the jungle of the dead. One of the things that he would discuss is agent orange. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of that. And, uh, he recalled actually one event where Agent Orange was being dropped on them, meaning his platoon, to kill the foliage around them, the jungle foliage, because, you know, that's where the, the Viet Cong, as they were called in those days, would hide. And so the less foliage you had, the more likelihood you would see these guys as they were hiding. So the United States would drop Agent Orange, which is like a poison, on top of big areas of jungle to kill that foliage. 
And Wayne recalled one point where his unit was trapped. They didn't have like any provisions at all. They were out of food. They could not find anything to eat. There were no animals around to eat. Um, so they had to resort to boiling leaves. And these leaves were covered, y'all, in Agent Orange. So they figured if we boil them, it'll kill whatever would kill us, right? And on another occasion, he actually drank river water uh, and uh, moisture from leaves, you know, it would rain in the in they had no water. So it would rain and the moisture would drip off these leaves and he would drink uh he would drink the water as would many other people. Of course, all of that contaminated with Agent Orange. So at the time, the United States, of course, for whatever reason, assumed that Agent Orange would not harm human beings. But years after Vietnam ended, they realized they were wrong. Um, these herbicides, y'all, contain large amounts of what's known as dioxin, and that's a byproduct that's produced during the manufacturing of Agent Orange. And these chemical compounds, they don't just evaporate, you know, within days or anything. As a matter of fact, they can last years and years in the environment, particularly when you're talking about dirt and things like that, lake and river sediment. If they attach to that stuff, they will stay there for years. So what does that contaminate? Well, if you grow food and you're growing it through dirt that is that contains Agent Orange, it'll kill you or it'll give you cancer and all kinds of different issues. As a matter of fact, just short-term exposure will actually cause darkening of the skin. You can get liver problems. They've linked type 2 diabetes to it, immune system dysfunction, nerve disorders, uh, the, even heart disease. And that's just to name a few. I can't even get into the long-term exposure and the cancers that they've figured out have been caused by Agent Orange. Just a horrible, horrible thing that was done there in Vietnam. And it's kind of important to note that because they – you know, over time, we're discussing it could even cause mental uh, issues. Wayne continues on, and eventually he serves his tour. And for those that aren't aware, a tour of duty is is your length of time that you have to serve at war. And he served his tour of duty for the United States and was just glad to get out of there alive. And he goes, gets on a plane heads back to the United States and the whole way he's thinking, well, I'm a war hero now. And when I get back, everybody, you know, there's going to be balloons and everybody's going to be blowing me kisses and all these sorts of things. He had no idea what the real response would be. And he was actually shocked that people were angry with him when he got off the plane. Then he ends up in Washington state. And he described a story later on in life where somebody saw him in his uniform and he was he was driving his vehicle and he stopped at a stoplight and they took a fire extinguisher and sprayed the fire extinguisher foam into his car. So unlike his father, Wayne would not share stories of Vietnam with people. And I and I, look, because I have family that served in Vietnam and I know people that served in Vietnam, a lot of them don't share stories, y'all. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Uh, my grandfather was in World War II, was decorated and, and highly ranked officer in World War II. And he would tell me stories till the cows came home. But people in Vietnam did not share stories. It wasn't big. You know, I'm sure I know that a lot of them were proud for what they had to do, unlike World War II. But a lot of it was when they came back, it was the reaction they got. And they almost got trained to just not speak about it. And he was one of those people. So he got discharged from the Army in 1970. And he spent the next two years, he was kind of in and out of college. And he had like a ton of jobs, like 15 different jobs. He would work. And it wasn't that he didn't do a good job. He would just quit. He would get bored really easy with these jobs. And he found it very difficult to stay in the same place for long. Eventually, Wayne marries his high school sweetheart, Rita. But that marriage, y'all, only lasted about six months. He just could not control his rage with her. Not only when he was awake, you know, he would just fly off the handle, much like his father, at, at nothing. He even told a story one time that he totally lost it because he opened up the refrigerator and there were too many bottles of ketchup from when Rita had went to the store and went grocery shopping. It, as a matter of fact, it made him so mad that he threw everything in the refrigerator against the wall. When he would sleep, he would have nightmares, wake up in the middle of the night, and he's like choking his wife, thinking he's back in Vietnam. So for Rita, this was misery. And he wouldn't talk to anyone about really the experiences that he had in Vietnam, even his mother, who was a nurse. Uh, but she did make suggestions. You need to maybe see a psychiatrist. But he would refuse and... and uh, say that he could deal with it himself. Uh, at one point, he was actually quoted as saying that he was afraid to mention his problems because he thought they put him in the nut house for the rest of his life. And his nightmares would get worse and worse. One time, when his sister woke him up for breakfast, he threw her across the room. And he would describe these nightmares as... So real that he would feel like he was right back in the war. He said he could see, smell, and almost taste everything that was happening around him. And when he would wake up, it would take him hours to realize where he was. And Wayne, much like his father, would drink to cope with that. And... Even though he was a heavy drinker, he had like zero tolerance for alcohol, y'all. He'd have two beers and he'd be shit-faced. Which later on in life, they figured out that actually Agent Orange exposure would cause liver damage. And that liver damage that you had from the Agent Orange would kind of lower your alcohol tolerance. You'd get drunk really, really fast. So it was all related. 
So on November 28th of 1972, Wayne, who was at that time working for a construction crew, he decides to go out drinking with his co-worker, a guy by the name of William Blackwell. And after, you know, closing the bar down, drinking so heavily, uh, they leave the bar. They're both absolutely shit-faced, and they go back to Wayne's apartment. And they wanted to talk over the details of a deer hunting trip that they had planned for the upcoming weekend. Now, at this time, although they had problems, he was still married to Rita. Rita was home at that time, and she remembers them having quite a few beers even after they got back to the apartment. So they're sitting there, they're talking about this hunting trip, and Wayne gets a rifle. And they're looking over the rifle, and that's the one that Wayne planned to use on that trip. And they kind of start arguing about it. His friend says, you need to bring a different rifle. This is not what you need. And the argument gets heated to the point where William Blackwell, who incidentally, y'all, his middle name was Butch, and that's what he went by. So we're going to call him Butch. Butch, who was known as a tough guy who liked to fight, he takes a swing at Wayne, and he catches him right in the head. And Wayne, he claimed to not remember much after that punch, but he did say that he felt suddenly as if he were back in Vietnam. It was almost like this guy hit him so hard and knocked him back to Vietnam. And this is common of people who have experienced trauma through war. If they get in a fight or something like that, it's almost like a trigger for them. And he got triggered. And he felt like, hey, I'm in the jungles of Saigon right now. So he goes back to his closet in another room and he grabs another rifle and he comes out and Butch, he figures out real quick, oh shit, this guy's about to shoot me. He can see in his eyes, he's not the guy he was before he punched him, right? And so they both are like struggling Butch is trying to pull the rifle out of Wayne's hand, and they're struggling, both trying to get a hold to this rifle. Wayne manages to wrestle it from Butch. When he was asked later on, and I'll just quote him, he said he sprayed the apartment with gunfire like he had in Vietnam. Now, Rita, who was in the house, she was very lucky she made it out unharmed, but Butch was killed instantly when he was shot in the head. So police arrive, and Wayne at this point had barricaded himself in the apartment, and he was going nuts, screaming about Vietnam and all these sorts of things. And then he starts firing shots over the officers' heads. He stays in the apartment for over an hour, and he's screaming and making animal sounds, things like that. And so the police, they get together, and they say, look— Maybe we need to call his mom or somebody he knows to get over here. Maybe they can talk him out of the house because the negotiators were getting nowhere. So they do that. They call his mother. She comes on the scene and she's actually able to talk him into surrendering to the police. He puts the weapon down. He comes out of the apartment. But as he's coming out, he's begging the police to kill him. But they decide to handcuff him instead and uh, Wayne's in a shit pile of trouble at this point. He's already murdered one. He was shooting at the police. You know his ass is in a bind. Now, at the trial, 
Wayne's lawyer didn't mention, did not even mention the fact that he had served in Vietnam, which if I'm a defense lawyer, that's the first thing I'm bringing up it, you know, in an attempt to explain why he did what he did. His lawyer didn't do that. He gets convicted right off the bat of first degree murder, no plea bargain, no nothing. The reason that I just spent all that time telling you about his history in Vietnam and his history even before that is because that's important to this story. If I would have just started with the murder itself, Wayne would have seemed to seem like a fucking lunatic, right? Uh, but when you hear that backstory, you even though you know I nor you probably agree with the outcome, maybe you can get a little sense of of why that happened. There was a lot of trauma in his case that related to that. Doesn't excuse it. But it wasn't someone that grew up, you know, in a middle class home, had no problems and just went off and wasted somebody. This guy had been through a lot in Vietnam. So somewhere along the line, somebody figures out, well, his lawyer didn't even mention Vietnam. And I'm not going to go into a whole lot of details, but I will tell you that his conviction would later be overturned. And he was offered a new trial. Now, when that happens and you're offered a new trial, you take a risk because they could find you guilty again. Now, in his case, he had first degree murder. He was already charged. He was already serving that sentence. But they offered him a plea deal. And that plea deal they offered him was if he pleads to manslaughter, uh, they'll give him 12 years in prison and he could you know, he'd be out and he he was all over that. I mean, you're facing life in prison. 12 years don't seem that bad, right? So he takes that sentence. And after three years in that Maryland prison, uh, he's eligible for parole, but he gets denied. And then soon after that, he actually escapes from a minimum security facility where he was being held in Maryland. So he's a fugitive. So he flees to the mountains and he lived off the land, y'all. This guy was from Vietnam. He knew how to hide. He knew how to live off the land. So he wanted to make his way down to Louisiana, Shreveport to be exact, where his mother lived. And he managed to do that, sleeping in cornfields and all of those sorts of things and makes it down to Louisiana and he would spend the next two years of his life living as a fugitive. So he would spend most of his time drinking heavily. Now, he stayed in touch with his mother until she died from cancer in October of 1978. As a matter of fact, one of her dying wishes, he would say later on, was that he would quit living under that alias and change his name back because all she wanted was to introduce him as her son. And, you know, that's, that's just... Uh, me and Woody say it all the time. There's somebody somewhere that loves you. Usually it's your mother and father, uh, no matter what you did. And his mother, from all you know, intents and purposes, loved him. And, uh, and unfortunately, she didn't see that day. 
But police eventually get on his trail. It wasn't hard. He was in Louisiana because his mother was there. I'm sure they knew that, just couldn't track him down. And they they started getting close. They were talking to friends uh, that were still in contact with him, and they would tell him, you know, the police are getting close. So he starts making plans to get out of Louisiana, right? Uh, he goes to a friend that he trusted. He said, man, can you get me some camping supplies? Uh, he came from Vietnam. He knows how to live outside for years. Then he asked another friend to pick him up later that night at a pizza parlor. He then went to one of his sisters and had her help him buy him a handgun. Uh, he told her, in, in I'll quote what exactly what he said, grave next to mother's is mine. So he knew he, you know, he was probably going to get killed trying to stay away from the police. On February 4th, The Minds of Madness is set to release an investigative four-part series centered on a cold case from nearly four decades ago. At first, it was just my mom's gone. And then it became, you know, your mom was taken by a bad man. They found video of him killing women. If you'd ever watched any uh, episodes of Breaking Bad, that's exactly what you would see. He buried these 11 women and kept going out there. He made a road going out there. You got this dude saying, hey, I'm going to show your family these pictures. And, like, he's secretly taping her. The cops don't care. We're nothing to them. Dumped her like a piece of garbage, you know? I don't see anything that screams there's two people doing this. I never thought anything was going to come of this case. Ever. Listen to the Minds of Madness series, Who Killed Jennifer, starting February 4th, wherever you get your podcasts. So he waits for his friend to pick him up at that restaurant, and he's, you know, he's down in beers just kind of to pass the time. But the friend had a change of heart. He's like, screw that. I'm not helping. I'm not becoming a aider and a better of a fugitive. And he never shows. So Wayne figures out this guy ain't coming, and the pizza place he was at was closing, so he decides he's going to go to the bar next door, and he's going to continue to drink. And he said later on that he had completely given up at this point. He, He was just desperate not to go back to prison, and he had made up in his mind that he was going to go to the bathroom and just shoot himself. So he pulls the gun out to kill himself and someone comes into the bathroom. So he's like, Oh shit. And just out of pure instinct, he hides the gun back in his waist and he leaves the bathroom. He goes back into a bar and he asks the bartender to call a taxi to pick him up. Meanwhile, the customer that walked into the bathroom, he actually saw that gun. Wayne didn't, realize that but he saw it while he's in the bathroom he calls the police now this is before cell phones y'all they actually they actually had a payphone in the bathroom so wayne's out there he's waiting for a taxi and the police show up first and one of the officers who arrived at the scene was a 31 year old by the name of thomas tompkins now, at first, the officers wanted to send him home in the taxi. They, they didn't realize he was wanted. But something happens, and they decide that they're going to arrest him and actually take him to jail for public intoxication. 
So Wayne allows the officers to pat him down, but somehow during this pat down, they totally missed the gun that he was hiding. Even though they were kind of looking for it, a guy had called the police on Wayne and said, you know, I think I saw him with a gun, but they miss it. They pat him down and they, they totally miss that gun. So they handcuff him and they put him in officer Tompkins car. Now, according to Wayne, who spoke on this later on, on his way to jail, he decides, if I'm going to kill myself, I need to do it now. He was totally determined not to go back to jail. So somehow, Wayne manages to move his cuffed hands around his feet to the front of his body. So he was cuffed around his back. Somehow he managed to take his feet and pull his arms to where he, he is now handcuffed in the front, if you will. And he grabs the gun that was still in his waistband. So Officer Tompkins, who's driving the vehicle, he notices kind of out of his perifs, right? He sees movement back there. So he looks in the rearview mirror and he sees Wayne bring the gun up to his own head. And he manages to grab Wayne's wrist before he could kill himself. So they start struggling. He pulls the car over. They're fighting for this gun, and the gun goes off two times. Both of those bullets actually go through the roof of the police car. The gun then goes off three more times, twice through the front seat of the patrol car and once through the floorboard. So they're fighting for this thing, and bullets are flying everywhere. Now, ballistics test would later show that one of the bullets actually ricocheted off a spring in the driver's seat of the patrol car and strikes Officer Tompkins in the side. And when it did, it severs his femoral artery in his growing and he bleeds out within minutes. You know, the, and it's tragic any time an officer loses his life, especially tragic here because this guy had only been a police officer for eight months when he died. He had two young children and he was married. And actually, this was his first day back to work after a long vacation that he enjoyed with that family. So this officer gets shot. Wayne freaks out. He manages to escape, and he flees the scene. Now, he's disoriented. He doesn't really know where he's at, y'all. And he recalled later on running in a zigzag pattern to avoid enemy fire, which was non-existent, right? He's back in that Vietnam state of mind. Now, within an hour, the Shreveport Police Department actually finds him cornered in someone's backyard where he was shot in the torso at point blank range by the police. And Wayne still had his weapon at that time, so it was justified. And obviously, he had killed one of their own, right? They're not playing around. Uh, Wayne was seriously injured, but he did survive that shooting. In that shooting, he would end up losing a kidney, part of his liver, and his right leg would end up completely paralyzed. So he lived, but just by the skin of his teeth. So he goes back to prison and his murder trial starts in August of 1980. And that murder trial lasted about two weeks. The state, they're, of course, seeking the death penalty in this case. He just shot and killed a police officer. He had another murder on his record that was 
pled down to manslaughter. And Wayne had a lawyer who was also a Vietnam veteran. And unlike the first time, uh, this guy was focused heavily on Vietnam and the effects of PTSD, which that same year had really just came into the forefront. Before that, there was no such thing as PTSD. But uh, in 1980, it really got recognized as a psychiatric disorder. So it was very new. People didn't know a whole lot about it, but it was recognized as a, as a disorder. So after those two weeks, the jury deliberates for less than two hours, and they return a verdict of guilty. Uh, and he gets sentenced to death for the killing of that police officer. They just were not buying the whole PTSD thing. And hey, he killed a police officer. PTSD or no PTSD, they were going for the death penalty. There was an uproar over this stuff. So Wayne goes to death row, and he would actually sit on death row in Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola for eight years as his case works his way, you know, through the appeals process. Of course, anytime you're sentenced to death, look, you're going to have years and years and years to work out that, those appeals before everything gets straight. And for many years, he was adamant that he wanted to die and actually attempted to take his own life more than once. But uh, he was always found in time. He got sent to the hospital at Angola where doctors would kind of fix him back up and he would go back to sit on death row. Now in 1983, he actually came close, real close to being executed. And a judge actually issued a stay just 60 hours before his execution, less than three days before he's supposed to be executed. And as time goes by, he actually changes his mind and he decides he wants to continue leaving you know, for whatever reason, could not stand thinking about staying in prison for the rest of his life, tried to kill himself many times. Well, he resides to, okay, this is my life, and he decides he wants to live it. Justice comes for us all. And on March 15th, 1988, just 10 days before his 39th birthday, he was put to death in gruesome Gertie, the electric chair. So he rode the lightning died, and justice was served in Louisiana State Penitentiary inside Bloody Angola. And that is the story of Wayne Feld. And, you know, knowing some, so many people uh, that had served in Vietnam, having family members and immediate family members that have, have served in Vietnam, as, as much as I hated this story from the aspect of, you know, you almost feel bad for Wayne uh, with everything he went through. He still had to be accountable for his actions, in my opinion. And uh, whether it was intentional or not, the shooting of this officer, and it was it was found through ballistic tests that the bullet that actually killed this officer went through that spring and then hit him. You know, that triggers being pulled a lot of times. So thank y'all so much for listening. Woody Everton should be returning next week. 
and we'll have our normal two-man rotation here on Bloody Angola. Uh, I want to thank all of you patrons for supporting us. Couldn't do it without you. We say it all the time. But patron members, Apple subscribers, y'all are who keeps us rolling. We spend so much time, y'all, researching these stories, and it just couldn't be possible uh, without your support. So thank you so much. You keep supporting, and we'll keep bringing you stories from America's largest maximum security prison. And until next time, I'm Jim Chapman. For Woody Everton, we are your host of Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making, the complete story of America's bloodiest prison. Peace. Straight line, shackled and chained. Oh, Goose and Gertie is calling my name. There is no mercy in this penitentiary. Just ask the Hill String Gang, Wrangle the Three.